Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. Hi, it's Alex. Welcome to the podcast. We have the second episode in our series on themes from CFUI's book, Young People on the Margins, for you. With Head of Policy Bart Shaw talking to Joint Head Teacher of Frank Wise School and National SEND Leader at Whole School SEND, Simon Knight, about special educational needs and disabilities, or SEND. It's a fascinating discussion on a really important topic. I hope you enjoy listening. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. Welcome everyone, it's nice to have you with us. This is one of a series of podcasts that we're putting out here at the Centre for Education and Youth, exploring some of the themes addressed in our book, Young People on the Margins, that we published earlier this year. And the book highlights the extent to which some groups of young people are pushed to the fringes of our education system. So today's podcast is going to focus on one of the largest of these groups, young people with special educational needs or disabilities. Our book chapter outlines the history of how young people with SEND have been treated in education policy before addressing some of the key challenges facing young people with SEND in today's policy landscape. And today I'm very excited to be joined by Simon Knight. Hi, Simon. Hi, Bart. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. It's nice to have you with us. So I'm going to do a little bit of an intro to, to you, Simon, and who you are, but you've had you've crammed so many things into your recent career that I might have missed stuff. So apologies if I have. Simon is the joint head teacher at Frank Wise School, a special school in Oxfordshire. You're also a national SEND leader at Whole School SEND. And for those of you who don't know what Whole School SEND is, it's a consortium of organisations and individuals committed to improving education for young people with SEND. And it's administered by NASEN, which is a national charity tasked by DfE with supporting schools' workforce development um, for SEND. Simon also sits, I think I'm right in saying, on a couple of advisory boards for the DfE, looking at teaching standards and teaching assistance standards relating to SEND. Simon's previously been Director of Whole School SEND, Director of Education at the National Education Trust, and a Director with a focus on SEND for the Oxfordshire Teaching School Alliance as well as developing your career as a senior leader at Frankwise. So it's an unbelievable mixture of practical and policy leadership. And I think gives Simon a really unique perspective on all things SEND, which you'll be lucky enough to hear for yourself in this podcast. So Simon, to kick us off, I'd like to start by talking about one particular theme from our book chapter on SEND, and that is the marginalisation of special schools themselves in the education system. You and I have talked in the past about the failure of the accountability system, for example, to adequately incentivise and support improvement in special schools. And the pandemic seems to have highlighted the relative lack of prioritisation of special of the special sector by education ministers. It's really noticeable to me that all the communications and guidance that came out during the pandemic, if they mentioned special schools at all, which was quite rare, it was as a bit of an afterthought. So I wanted to start by asking whether the kind of the characterization I presented just now of special schools being on the margins of our education system, whether that 
actually does feel fair to you. Blimey. <laughs> Leaping in with a nice easy one. Thanks for that, Bart. Yeah, yeah. No icebreakers here, Simon. I think it's easy um, when you work in the sector to to kind of get a bit worries me at times. And, and therefore, it's a, a responsibility of those of us that work with, with children with learning disabilities and, and, and children with SCND more broadly to advocate strongly and to challenge that that kind of perception and challenge that that reality. I think it's fair to say that we're a post hoc education area. You know, we're often an afterthought in terms of policy, in terms of prioritisation at a national level and in terms of, of activity. And, and I think you're right to say that the pandemic exposed that. But it isn't something that exists within the context of the pandemic. It is something that exists within the context of the broader education system in, in this country. An Ofsted report published, you know, yesterday, you know, has, has highlighted that. And, and what it's particularly highlighted is, is something that I think many many of us would have would have predicted, which is a, a sector of education that is structurally neglected, that has been on the receiving end of, of significant political ambivalence, really struggled when things got tough, and and really struggled when you know we we had to kind of reimagine and, and and you know reinvent the way in which we work. But I also think it's important to, to say that there was some really good stuff that, that happened, that, that, that some some families got a really good deal and, and some schools really did step up. You know, and you can see aspects of that in, in some of the work of Oaks. You know, there, there's some really, really good pieces there that were put together really, really quickly, particularly the stuff on preparation for adulthood, you know, which kind of looked at how you create educational value out of lived experience, which I thought, you know, is a really important way of conceptualising a kind of remote education. It is tricky and we have to find that balance between being, you know, kind of, you know, really strong voices of, of positivity, of, of, of kind of improvement, of high expectations, of ambition, but whilst also recognising that, that sometimes others don't share the same values that we do in terms of the potential that our young people have and, and what they can contribute to society. Yeah, that's really interesting. That kind of that last point you've made about values and contributing to society. I mean, one of the thing, the interesting things that I kind of learned during the kind of process of writing the book chapter was kind of looking at the history of educational reforms and policy around inclusion and and how how almost like responsibility for for the progress and learning of of some young people with SEN is kind of like in the past has been almost like outsourced out of the education system to something that feels much more kind of medical in focus. And I guess there's been like a real, I guess there has been a change. There has been more, more of a recognition of what all young people can achieve. But yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right in saying that the pandemic has highlighted things that were around before. So thinking about kind of the special, thinking about with your kind of Frank Wise hat on, how does that kind of feeling of marginalisation manifest itself? What are the kind of the most notable ways in which you feel the, that special schools are treated differently or are not supported in ways that other schools might be? It's the variability that you see across the system and the fact that, you know, quite often the work of special schools isn't isn't seen as being something to highlight, to celebrate, to use as a reference point yeah. for excellence. You can see it in things like getting to teaching. So the, 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 the DfE's teacher training kind of marketing mechanism and, and, and kind of visibility tool. 
there's, there's almost nothing about special schools in there. I can't recall ever seeing a special school classroom represented in any of the videos that they've produced or any of the stuff that they've put on television or that they've used on the internet. And it's things like that that can, can be really quite frustrating. You know, and, and it's such a small thing, you know, to, to, to see your, your sector represented alongside mainstream as being a valuable part of the education system. And, you know, it, it's something you try not to, you know, allow to become, you know, that kind of grain of sand that eats away, you know. If it is going to be a grain of sand, we want it to be an oyster and turn it into a pearl so that we can kind of, you know, make use of that frustration and, and use it as a way of creating something of quality. So I try and, I try not to get too frustrated about it. I suspect some people will be raising an eyebrow now, not least um, many people in the DFE who, who get my emails on a fairly regular basis about various different things, um, you know, because, um, you know, it's important that we challenge that status quo um, because what it does is it sets apart you know and, and further segregates an education system that is already you know segregatory and we can't get away from that fact that in the specialist sector we are a segregated provision and we work really hard to be as inclusive as we possibly can and work really hard to ensure that our our educational opportunities are embedded in the local community and our young people are highly visible in the local community you know, but we are we are separate to the mainstream, and and so it is frustrating when you see announcements that perpetuate that. Do you think it's, you know, it, it is as simple as visibility and ministers announcements, talking, referencing the special sector, you know, recruitment videos highlighting opportunities and career paths in in special schools, or do you think that there are other kind of structural things that might need changing to 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 mitigate the marginalization of special schools i mean those things are superficial really <laughs> you know it's like they are there are major structural issues that you know need addressing maybe we'll see them addressed in the send review you know when it when it gets published you know which is you know something that is is supposed to be you know taking a fairly forensic and and holistic look at the scnd you know kind of system but no, it's um, it's multi-layered and multifaceted, and you know one of the things that, that frustrates me greatly is the highly variable SEND input at initial teacher education. You know, so you've you've got no specification or quantification of opportunity there. And I work with NQTs on a fairly regular basis. I still, unfortunately, come across NQTs who've had little more than half a day on the nine-month PGCE. You know, they've probably focused on the four broad areas of needs and the code of practice not really any practical strategies for supporting children who present with complexity in the classroom and then you've got people sat next to them in the same room you know having the same conversations who've done a four-year you know teacher training program three years of it with an SEND enhancement and they would be they've been in AP they've been in special schools they've done a significant amount what we're doing there is we're, we're setting teachers up to fail a little bit because they're going to be accountable for the same kind of kids in the same kind of classrooms but they've been prepared in very very different ways and, you know, I think we've got to get to grips with that a little bit. And it's one of the things that strikes me as slightly problematic with regards to the ECF, you know, is that there's quite a lot of specification in the ECF, although there's not um, so much to do with, with SEND, that's sort of being developed. But if you've got highly variable input from initial teacher education, but then highly prescribed, you know, post-qualification training, you could end up magnifying the variance or leaving quite big gaps. So I think there's quite a bit of work to do there. So, so how do we ensure that all teachers are equitably equipped to support all children in their classrooms? I think it's a really, really big question. You've again got you know other issues such as finance. You know we've got uh, hugely variable 
a kind of funding system within the specialist sector. The use of top-up funding is done on a very, you know, individualised way from one local authority to another. That sees schools, you know, sometimes, and ours, ours is a good example of this, we're, we're funded at around about £3,500 per pupil below national average for a school of our type, which is around about half a million a year, less than average, for working with the, the same kinds of children with the same kinds of needs, and that's not right. You know, and, and, you know, we do an amazing job to deliver the very best education we can, but that underfunding comes at a cost. And, and it's, you know, it seems really unfair that children get a different level of investment, a different level of resource, purely dependent on whereabouts they live. So that's another biggie. And then you've got the accountability system. You know, we, we've got SCND sits very much as a deficit model, as a comparator against, you know, kind of a fairly narrow normative range of expected development. And, and therefore, there are lots of challenges in mainstream for schools that want to be as inclusive as they possibly can, because, you know, within the context of accountability, that comes at a risk. And, and that, for me, is you know, a real a real shame that we're not finding better ways to incentivize schools to serve the entirety of their communities as best they possibly can. But I think we've still got some way to go with that. Yeah, really interesting. And um, definitely, you know, talking of that, that sort of is true for for all schools, really, and not just not just special but it's interesting also I find thinking about how the accountability system works for special schools in particular so do, do we have a system that that marginalizes just by its it, by its existence marginalizes special schools you know how does a how does in your experience how does progress eight work for for you how does how does Ofsted work for you do they pick up on the things that you want them to pick up does it feel like round holes square pegs in terms of accountability yeah the, the systems aren't work, you know, well, well matched to the kids we work with things like progress a attainment a then they're not tools that we can make use of because our children are operating in a you know in a context that is developmentally determined not chronologically determined our entire yeah. education is, is, is bespoke to them and, and therefore comparative analysis is really tricky. In terms of Ofsted, I think they do a pretty good job when they come in. I've, I've not had a bad inspection, you know, certainly not since I've been working in senior leadership. I think back when I was a teaching assistant, so you're talking kind of mid-90s, I remember there being a bit of a ropey, you know, experience in the head at the time having to kind of challenge, you know, some of the, the kind of expectations that were, were kind of being presumed by by the inspectorate but that was that was all dealt with but no we've we've had a we've had a good deal from inspection and and we've had a challenging experience of inspection exactly how it should be so you know for for someone who is is often quite critical of the broader system it might be quite unexpected that I'm not of Ofsted that doesn't mean I don't think there are things that Ofsted can do differently and that things that Ofsted need to look at differently Uh, I do worry a little bit about the way SCND is analysed and reported within the context of mainstream schools I think there's better coverage. I'm not sure that we're necessarily where we need to be in terms of seeing consistency of, you know, quality of analysis of SCND within mainstream settings. But in terms of accountability, for me, it's not so much the structures that sit within education, it's the structures that sit beyond it. So one of the, the documents that's had a, a really quite profound impact on, on my thinking as a school leader is, is a fair supportive society by the Institute of Health Equity which sets out in quite stark relief the long-term life outcomes of people with learning disabilities. Uh, I'm, I'm staggered that that isn't something that's been all over the front pages of the national press, because I think if it related to almost any other group you know, of society, anyone else who has a, a protected characteristic of any description, you know, that would have been 
you know really picked up and and challenged and seen as being a you know something really quite shameful that that society has has allowed this has permitted this to take place so that that's what i aspire to do is is, is challenge that data and that kids that go to our school challenge that data that they get better outcomes in their lives beyond school and that's where a lot of our energy as a as a school is being devoted at the moment is how do we how do we become an outlier of inclusivity beyond the school yeah you know rather than just within the school really interesting we've been thinking a lot recently about kind of what are the the limits to what schools can do in sort of beyond the kind of the the basics of teaching content towards kind of you know advocating or or bringing together you know collaborations of of people that can improve people's lives in the in the longer term so it's really interesting hearing you hearing you say that what's your kind of sense of what the role of schools is is it just about setting whilst people are with you setting them up as best you can to succeed in a in a world that is often quite skewed against them or are there things that you know you can do to bring together local government local businesses local charities you know what's been your experience in that in that sense i think i think it's two parts you know the, the, the latter is really really important but but adding to that is i think there needs to be a a really clear acknowledgement from within schools that the value of an education, the value of the education that we offer isn't determined by what children can do within the school day or within the school year. It's determined really by what they can do beyond the school day and beyond their educational career. And I think there's a risk sometimes in, in special education that we can we can celebrate quite fragile success. There's a veneer of kind of plausible attainment that's scaffolded really quite carefully, resourced really quite heavily, you know, that's supported really very sort of thoughtfully. But does it translate in, into kids having a greater quality of life beyond school? And, and that's the thing that I'm really interested in. And that that cannot be an education only responsibility it cannot be a public sector only responsibility it has got to be a societal collective responsibility it's got to be all of us together and so there's an awful lot of work to do you know in partnership with the third sector the private sector to enable them i think to have the confidence to you know embrace people who present differently who present with an element of complexity to see beyond that difference and 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 see the potential we see and have greater ambition for what they can do as organisations and what we can do as a society to ensure that our young people can can have their rightful place at the heart of it and make a meaningful contribution and benefit from what society has to offer back in return. I think we're a long way from that at the moment. I mean, you know, the employment data alone is is, is horrifying. You know, it's sort of around a ninety six percent unemployment rate. You know, it's slightly different if you if you disaggregate the data, but it doesn't get much better. You kind of see some some aspects of the learning disabled community sort of around eighty six percent unemployment rate. That's not a success. That's awful. You know, and 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 then there's other aspects that you know of data that. I find just painful to read. And, and this, this comes from the Institute of Health Equity stuff. So if people are interested, download it. It's a great document to read. It's, it's a very accessible document and you can get the background data to it. But people with learning disability, 50% of them experience chronic loneliness at some point in their lifetime. What does it cost to stop someone being lonely other than to value them as a human being? And I just, I just find that in- incredible. But as a society, we've allowed that to happen and we permit that to happen. And there's only so much we can do as schools. And I think we also need to be mindful that there are limits to what we can do and and, and you know, the risks around having a, a kind of a, a saviour mentality driven by, you know, kind of the limitations of what we can do. So it's got to be about building, building understanding, building bridges, you know, creating alliances 
and, and and that's something that I think should be being you know encouraged much more from a central position rather than relying on local yeah. you know kind of initiatives and, and and local relationships so you know I think that for me is, is one of the big things that I'd like to see change at a policy level is is, is stop you know seeing SCND as sitting within distinct areas of national policy you know, it doesn't sit just within education. It doesn't sit just within health. It doesn't sit just within social care. It's got to sit much more broadly than that, you know, the Department of Business, you know, and it's got to sit within much broader organisations than just those that are, are managed and controlled and funded by government. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, fully, fully on board with that. It's, uh, it's great to hear you talking, talking like that. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those sort of, Having a government that is structured the way it is, having a civil service that's structured the way it is, you know, people talk about silos all the time, and sometimes it's more or less, you know, tangibly problematic. And I think this is a great example of where it does become problematic. You know, it's clearly, as you say, a societal problem. It's something that affects people with, you know, learning difficulties, learning disabilities throughout their lives. And yet we have these sort of strange we have these almost like arbitrary cutoffs in terms of the type of support or who's involved in the support or who's thinking about improving things that's so disjointed so yeah it's a big it's a big ask but i think one that we should we should really think about we're now going to take a break to hear a little bit more about cfey's new book young people on the margins available now from routledge other bookstores and online Stay tuned, we'll be back with the second half of the podcast after this short message. Our society leaves too many young people behind. People sometimes call them Disadvantaged Underprivileged Vulnerable Hard to reach Forgotten Misunderstood. Challenging. But really, we all know it's more complex than that. The pandemic has widened gaps that already existed, revealing stark inequities. Young People on the Margins shows how we can all play a part in transforming our society into one that ensures all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. to the podcast. I think one of the first steps in the right direction is for the system in its broadest sense and those that operate within it as professionals need to act with a little bit more humility and and need to look to see where the solutions exist that are not of their ownership. You know, it's like the system hasn't been working for a very, very long time, if ever. And yet there still seems to be almost a structural reluctance to embrace the lived experience of families and embrace the knowledge that exists within within parent groups and, and individual families. And I've been doing some work locally with our local authority. We're really wrestling with this whole concept of you know co-production and partnership. And and you know we've had some really powerful input from from some someone we we kind of engage with on Twitter. I'll use his handle. I hope he doesn't mind. It's um, Barnsley Send, and and he's been brilliant about really challenging the way that we think and talking far more about co-responsibility and co-design 
and that from that comes co-production that co-production is not the journey co-production is the end point the product and that it's about sharing responsibility and sharing the design of change that will enable you to get to where you want to go and it's really helped challenge you know the way we think and it's really helped kind of overcome i think some of those strange public sector professional behaviors that that see families distanced at times and, and wrongly so yeah no I, t- I i i totally agree with that i i think actually that's something that special schools probably do lead the way in in the education sector i think there's probably better parental engagement i'm not sure it's perfect but i'm sure there's better it's fair to say there's better more meaningful parental engagement that leads to better provision or more tailored provision in the special sector than there is in mainstream i find quite often this sort of is getting around this this idea as you say that you the teacher i mean i'm coming at this from my own teaching background and actually talk about some mistakes i made in my own teaching career in the in the book there's a certain insecurity that comes with being a so-called expert in teaching and learning and and you almost feel that you are you're the person who needs to take full responsibility for that and it's a bit of a bit of a failure or it's a or you're opening yourself up to all sorts of risks if you are talking to parents regularly about their child's progress and I'm I'm sure the same is true beyond schools as well where I have much less experience but I'm sure that the same is true in the in the health sector I'm sure it's true in in terms of kind of uh, benefits, support into work. Experts almost hoard the responsibility rather than looking outwards and thinking about how they can share it and bring in, bring in different ideas. This is um, really interesting, Simon. Thank you. I was going to ask you as well, just slightly changing tack, about one of the things we talk about in our book is about bringing mainstream schools and special schools together, encouraging more collaboration and I know that that's something through your work with Whole School Send that you've done a bit of. So I wondered whether you kind of you'd be able to talk about kind of the the pros and cons of doing that, and what, in your experience, you found works well. Cool. Okay. So the f- the first thing is to we need to overcome the idea that we own all the expertise in the specialist sector. We absolutely don't, and any kind of collaborative practice that creates a patronage model. You know, where the kind of the, the special school is coming in, you know, again, it's that sort of risk of saving mentality, isn't it? That we're coming over the hill with all the answers, you know, it needs to be avoided. And I think sometimes collaboration and partnership can can kind of end up perpetuating that if we're not careful. We need to be we need to kind of be mindful of, of that risk. But there are lots of different ways of, of, of kind of building shared expertise and collective expertise. One of the one of the things that we do, well, I say we do, um, when there's not a, a pandemic on, we do. <laughs> we can't do this at the moment. But all of our kids at the age of 16 spend half a day a week in mainstream. We've got partnerships with about eight different schools, 11 different class groups. And every week, these kids, they get together and, and they participate in, in collaborative educational activity, generally around non-core subjects, particularly as they get older, because the curriculum gaps of things like maths and English and science you know, end up getting quite wide quite quickly. But certainly within the arts, the humanities, a bit more PE and, and stuff like that, we do some, some some great collaborative stuff. So the important thing for me is that, that the collaboration between the mainstream and the specialist sector isn't just about adults, it's about kids and about using this as an opportunity to break down those perceptual barriers around difference, you know, and kind of, you know, promoting the experience of sharing time with 
with, with kids that, that go to different schools or that have different you know kind of areas of complexity and interestingly we actually got some staff here whose, whose first experience of working with children with learning disabilities was through inclusion when they were kids in primary school which is is, is always um good to see less good when the teachers actually turned out to be in a year six class when i was taking a class to inclusion which just makes me feel really <laughs> old uh, that they're now, they're now they're now one of our teaching team so you know it kind of shows how long i've been uh, been working here so there's that side of it then then the other side is that we need to ensure that collaboration isn't driven by deficit and and sometimes what i see is um, mainstream schools reaching out when they've got a problem yeah and, and they don't know what to do and i'd much rather see that kind of structural relationship being there just for the sake of being there so that we actually invest in pedagogical understanding that we invest in knowledge of the child in in you know all its sort of you know ways rather than just you know we've noticed through a test that so-and-so is not doing as well as we thought they should be and can you come and give us some advice because that's all a bit reactive a bit responsive and the other thing that that, that you sometimes see which you know I'm, I'm really kind of concerned about and, and trying to avoid at all costs where I can is is partnership driven by the desire to move children from one setting to another and so sometimes special schools being called in to create an evidence base for a child being moved into the specialist sector if you're at that stage, then something's gone wrong, really, because because there should have been involvement, you know, much earlier on and involvement that, you know, drives improvements in practice. So I'm much more interested in sustained input. I'm much more interested in collaboration and co-teaching. And you can use a lot of the parallels that you, you find in in things like the, the, the Standard for Teacher Professional Development, which looks at the kind of iterative process of professional development and, and that kind of, you know, sequence. It, it should be the same for collaborative practice between schools you know, so that we're building things over time. And, and again, you know, there, there's been quite a lot of stuff around, you know, knowledge exchange and, and, and how we do that. But I'll go back to the point I made earlier, is, is that knowledge exchange in terms of the expertise, the experiences doesn't exist just between professionals in one sector and professionals in another. This is where parents are so valuable in terms of the, the knowledge that they have. You know, and it's something that I think schools need to be a, a, a little bit more confident about, you know, bringing into their settings. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Bart, is about that kind of, you know, magnification of responsibility, that sense that we should have the answers and, and the, the confidence it takes, the professional, you know, kind of confidence it takes to say, actually, I don't know all the answers. You know, I need a little bit of help here. And I always think there's something really positive about a teacher who's willing to ring a parent up and say you know I'm struggling a bit here teaching your child is there anything that you can do to help me do my job better you know and I think there's something really important about teachers in schools saying to their line managers you know whether it be SLT or heads of department I'm struggling a little bit understanding how to teach children who present with greater complexity in my classes who've got SCND or whether you know English additional language whatever it might be in terms of some sort of additionality how do I do it better but I worry sometimes that in education, we're not brilliant at supporting teachers in that way. You know, that, that sometimes an acknowledgement that we have you know, gaps in our knowledge is, is not seen as a, as a positive. And, and I think that's something that we, you know, we need to be challenging. You know, if we're going to be a mature profession, then we need to be really honest about the things that we don't do so well and be really honest about how we do them better. And certainly where SCND is concerned, some of the research we did at Whole School Send around CPD priorities would suggest that SCND is not seen as a priority for professional development in schools. And, and that's something that does need to be challenged. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, the, the piece of work that we did a while ago, looking at kind of relative prioritisation of SEND, and it was like almost as if people knew that they <laughs> knew that they should, they knew what the answer was, but it doesn't always translate into, into actual action. 
Yeah, interesting what you're saying there. It's almost like three things occur to me. It's like, how do you persuade schools, school leaders, teachers, that it is a good idea to to move away from the deficit kind of model of collaboration, as you say, towards kind of routinely in a sustained way. And, I, and one of those is, and we know all the evidence that points towards early identification, early intervention, when you spot things aren't maybe going quite as you as you expect and how important that is there's all the you know the 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 stuff that's kind of well rehearsed now and well and you know totally rings true about how engaging with some of those ideas about supporting your the learners with the most needs then translates and improves teaching for everyone and there's also the point that we were talking about earlier that you know having that kind of collaboration that sort of the model you talked about with primary school where your pupils and pupils in local primary schools and and, and secondary are kind of working together and doing stuff together on a regular basis. That That's, you know, one way in which you can start to build that empathy, that understanding that, you know, we've already identified earlier in the conversation is lacking in our, in our society. Given that we know all that stuff, how can we, like, how do we shift things? How do we, you know, is it about just saying those messages more or are there actual kind of structured incentives that are needed to drive that change yeah i I think that's really complicated uh, and i'm not sure that i could do an answer to that justice you know without really giving it quite a lot of thought but but there's there's a couple of things that i think are worth considering and and part of this came out the, the the sort of the pandemic response and i think that one of the things that we could do is, is look at a system of, of policy reform within education that looks to have a disproportionately positive impact on children with SCND or children that don't necessarily get what they need to get from the education system. We often talk about, you know, kind of policy change and being you know, kind of looked at through the lens of things like equality impact assessments to make sure there's not a disproportionate negative impact, you know, make sure that we mitigate those sorts of things. But we very rarely talk about making sure there's a disproportionate positive impact so that we begin to level from a different a different direction. And I'd, I'd really like to see that. I'd really like to see any change in national policy in education or national policy in anything related to the public sector is, is to, to really kind of set out those parts of the community that are at least well served by it and how does policy change disproportionately impact on that to the positive and I'm not sure we're doing enough of, of that yet and, and the other side of, of it is when we look at implementational change and, and this is particularly around the pandemic because there were some massive changes having to be made really quite quickly you know in, in, in you know, a massive national scale is trying to work out how we cope with the most complex aspects of the system first rather than doing it post hoc and and all the time SCND is is an afterthought or the bit that comes second you know and actually what would happen to the wider education system if it came first if the solutions to the challenges that we face of a system as a country as a society we looked at serving the most complex parts of it you know as as the priority and then worked out how to make it you know implement you know appropriate for the least complex now you can argue that there's all sorts of different ways of looking at complexity um, and, and you know I'll take that one on the chin because you know what I see as being complicated other people might not see as being as such and you know I know that I'm you know very much at risk of seeing you know aspects of the education system as being you know simple when they're really not um, you know so it's a big conversation it's a big conversation that needs to be had and and the other one uh, I suppose and this goes a little bit back to the point we we're just talking about with regards to inclusion is, is what are the impacts we want to see you know, what is it that we we want to see the education system doing? And, and somebody once asked me, you know, what is the impact of in, inclusion? What is the impact of what you do 
primary schools? You know, what 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 does it result in? And one of the things that that I suggested was was really important was parents walking down the high street and having a kid from another school come up and give their kid a high five, you know, say hello to them, ask them how they've been, what they've been up to, because it, it made them feel part of something. It made them feel part of a community. And, and a lot of the time, you know, our kids and their families feel on the fringes of, of the community for all sorts of different reasons. And and, and that's something that, that the education system really should be challenging and changing. It's a really nice uh, point to end on, I think, Simon. It's a sort of, you know, a tangible uh, challenging but kind of you can see how it might work you know that kind of idea I think is the sort of thing that we need to we need to make more of and we need to we need to discuss and, and test how it works so thank you so much for for joining us today I really enjoyed our conversation we've mentioned a couple of bits of reading so we'll pop those in the show notes definitely worth uh, picking up on Simon's recommendation there but yeah just to say Thank you, Simon. And um, I hope to speak to you again very soon. Cheers, Bart. Much appreciated. Take care. Bye. Bye. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.